Matthew chapter 11, verse number 28 is a popular verse of Scripture. It's a well-known verse of Scripture. It is a comforting verse. It is an encouraging verse where Jesus says, Come unto me, all you that labor and are heavy laden. For the most part, I think we all resonate uh, with what he's, uh, what he's saying here in this verse, that, it, that we always or at some point feel that we are heavy laden and that the work of life is a labor. But he says, I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. And learn from me, for I am meek and lowly in heart, and you shall find rest unto your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Let me define for you biblically what your soul is real quickly. The Bible says, Paul writes to the Thessalonians, that we are made in the image and the likeness of God because of the fact that we are body, soul, and spirit, triune in the same way that God is triune. So if you've ever been confused or never been taught, uh, there's a difference between your soul and your spirit. They are not the same thing. And of course, I think what's pretty self-evident what our body or what our flesh is. Uh, according to the Bible, your soul is the seat of your mind, your will, and your emotions. So your soul, in essence, is who you are. Your soul is the only thing you would know about yourself and others. Uh, if you were blind or lacked uh, maybe one or more other senses, you wouldn't be able to interact or see the barrier of the flesh, and you would only know somebody according to their mind, their will, and their emotions. And it, it's, it's one thing to have rest for your body, and that is a, that's a lovely notion because we don't even get that oftentimes, but to have rest for your soul, that sounds like something very desirable. So our minds are 24-7. Your dreams can make you emotional. You can still be expressing and experiencing those emotions while you sleep. Your will is in constant demand. The spirit wants you to go one way, God's way. The flesh wants you to go the other way, man's way or the world's way. So there's that constant battle. I would love to have a little rest for my soul. Jesus promises here in Matthew that he gives us that rest. We're going to dive into what that means a little bit more this morning. So we're going to talk, we're going to, we're going to take a little journey down the pathway of history, if you will, in order to explain some things and bring it back around to what this actually means and perhaps how we can apply it to our lives. I want to go to Matthew chapter 4, verse number 19. Matthew chapter 4, verse number 19. Once again, we'll be in the King James Version this morning. He says in Matthew 4:19, real simply, he said unto them, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. In Matthew 8 and 22, Jesus said unto them, follow me and let the dead bury their dead. Matthew chapter 9, verse 9, and as Jesus passed forth thence, he saw a man named Matthew sitting in the receipt of custom and he said unto him, follow me. And he arose and followed him. Mark chapter 2, verse 14, as he passed by, saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the receipt of custom. He said unto him, follow me, and he arose and followed him. John chapter 1, verse 43, the day following, Jesus would go forth into Galilee, and he found Philip, and he said unto him, follow me. And they followed. I don't know if you've ever had this question pop up in your mind, or perhaps you're starting to wonder right now, how is it that this guy named Jesus could just walk up to people, seemingly anybody that he chose, and say, follow me, and they would get up and stop everything that they were doing and just follow him. Now, you and I, we, we look retrospectively, and we know who Jesus is, and it seems like you know we, we put ourselves in that position. And yeah, if Jesus came and said, follow me, yeah, we're going to jump up and follow him. But you've got to realize, there had been no cross yet. There had been no death. There had been no resurrection. There hasn't been a miracle save uh, turning the water into wine, and not everybody knew about that. And I'm sure uh, some people that heard about it uh, by word of mouth or secondhand, um, I'm sure they, they had their moments of not believing necessarily exactly with the story that was going around. Uh, there, there, there is a lot that we know about Christ that they don't yet know about him. So how is it that this tax collector, which is a very good paying job, could be sitting at receipt of custom, as the Bible says, and Jesus could just walk up to him and say, follow me, 
and he would follow him. How could somebody be out in their boat uh, taking on their family business, fishing and providing for their family in, 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 a, in, a, in a, uh, a well-to-do trade, and Christ could just walk by and say, hey, follow me, and they would set everything down and they would follow him. Why would Philip do that? Why would Matthew do that? Why would John do that? Why would Peter do that? How did he... Are we missing something? Is the Bible just not expressing the full conversation? Think about, put yourself in that position, either one, Jesus or the people following him. What type of a conversation would you have to have in order to make that decision? If you're in the midst of your family trade and business and somebody walks up to you and says, hey, I'm, I'm, I'm doing this church thing. I want you to quit and follow me. Come do it with me. When you'd be like, well, I'm gonna, I mean, I don't have to quit, though. I mean, may I, what kind of church is it? Well, I'm not sure. Okay, well, the church sounds good. Well, who are you? Who's your pastor? Okay, well, okay, I've heard of that. Okay, that makes sense. So you want to go start a church? Well, I've been looking for a church. You know, I'd be interested, but honestly, like, you want me to, you're wanting me to, like, come help you right now, but you're not asking me to quit, quit. No, quit. Yes, lay everything down. I want you to stop what you're doing right now. I want you to get up from the, the table. I want you to put down your tax receipts, and I want you to follow me. Well, let's say, say that I did do that. What exactly would we be doing today? And how am I going to pay my bills? Like, how are we going to make money? Like, what are we going to do? You, you need to have, you'd have a lot of questions, I'm sure. Let me go home, talk to my wife. Let me discuss it with my children. Let me, yada, yada. How is it that he could just walk up to people and say, follow me? And, of course, we, we are people of faith, so if we were literally presented with that question in a conversation, we might just respond, well, he's Jesus. I mean, he just had that about him. He had that authority. He had that, he had that God nature when he spoke. You just had to do what he said. and you would. Just, well, but that didn't happen every time that he spoke in the Bible. There were Pharisees. There were Sadducees. There were people in his hometown that said, this is just the son of Joseph. There were literally whole cities that he left and said, I can do no works because of their unbelief. It'll be better for Sodom and Gomorrah in that day. He didn't have a magical, powerful voice. He wasn't a wizard. Not that wizards are even wizards either, but you understand uh, just as, as far as fairy tales and examples go, it wasn't that kind of magic where he could just say something and make everybody do what he wanted them to do. Now, he had things, like on the cross, it says he could have called down 10,000 angels. Yes, I understand all that, but that's not what he did. What he did was he walked up to people and he said, follow me, and they followed him. So I think we owe it to ourselves to try to figure out how that's possible. Um, before I answer that question or help answer that question for you, uh, as I said earlier, we've got to take a, a little a trip down history lane. So I want to talk to you real quick about a concept that we are unfamiliar with but that everybody in Israel and Jerusalem at that time would have been very familiar with. It's the concept of a rabbi. Whenever um, somebody, if somebody were to ask you the question, or at, at, at one point in my life, I'm sure if somebody were to ask me the question, uh, Jesus, aside from being Jesus, like, what was he? What did he do? What was his trade? A lot of people would say carpenter. And we feel like that's a, um, that's a well-learned answer. He was a carpenter. There are bumper stickers. I don't remember what they say. Something like, my, my savior was a carpenter. Something, it's, it's really a lot more catchy than that. I don't remember how they wrote it, but you've probably seen them. Shirts about Jesus being a carpenter. Everybody knows that he was a carpenter. There's all kinds of stories. You know, I wonder what the tables were like. I wonder what the chair, whatever, all the stuff that he made. It must have been perfect, yada, yada. Uh, but what's funny is, in Scripture, he's called a rabbi 13 times. He's called a teacher upwards of 40-something times. He's called a carpenter once. In reality, if you're going to really study and figure out what did Jesus do or what, what was his work, what was his trade, what was his title, it would be rabbi, not carpenter. Rabbi. What does it mean to be a rabbi and uh, how do we get there? It's necessary to answer these other questions. Uh, so let me let me take you on this journey real quick. In Israel, there is a there's a there's a schooling system that was a, a little bit more evident in the days of Jesus Christ. But in um, in synagogues and seminaries over in Israel to this day, they still follow these statutes and they follow uh, these guidelines. 
Uh, there were at least three separate schools that a young man would go through, a couple of them that a young woman would go through. Um, everybody that is born in Israel had the opportunity to start down this path. Uh, primary school, if you will, school number one, is called Beth Sefer, and it means house of the book. Uh, a child would attend, male or female, the Beth Sefer or primary school from ages 6 to 10. They would attend the school five days a week. There would be a local synagogue or Torah teacher who would begin teaching the Torah. The Torah is the Hebrew word for the first five books of your Bible. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, and Deuteronomy. First five books they would begin to teach. The reason they taught these five books is because these are the five books that Moses wrote. This was the only Bible that they had up to that point until uh, Judges was written. And Joshua, I'm sorry, Joshua and Judges and those books soon after. So... Uh, they would they would begin studying these five books, and there was a very unique thing the rabbis would do on the first day of class. You can throw Psalm 119, 103 on the on the screen behind me if you would. Um, I thought about possibly trying to do something like this today in the congregation, but I, I couldn't figure out how to make it uh, 2014-ish, if you will. What they used to do is they would take a chalkboard. Every child would have his own personal little chalkboard and piece of chalk tied to a string or however they wanted to do it. And on day one, before anything was ever written or erased, the rabbi or the, the, the teacher in the synagogue, the local Torah teacher, would, um, would give everybody in the class a little bit of honey, and they would spread honey on their chalkboard. And then well, when, when he was done, everybody had their honey, he would instruct them to pick their chalkboard up and lick the honey off, and lick the honey off their fingers, and then they would recite Psalm 119, 103, uh, which is going to be on the board behind me. And... Uh, Basically, it says, may the words of God be sweet to your taste, sweeter than honey to your mouth. May the words of God be the most pleasurable, most enjoyable thing you could ever comprehend. So a child, age 6 to 10, they were introduced in Israel to the scriptures as if there was nothing more enjoyable in the entire universe than tasting the word of God and making it a part of their life. That's how they were introduced to the scriptures. From ages 6 to 10, they would have to memorize the Torah, the first five books. By age 10, they would have the entire Torah memorized, and they would have completed Bet or Beth Sefer, house of the book. House of the book. How are you introduced to the scriptures? How are you introduced? We all have our own testimony. I think it would be an amazing thing for those of us that know the Lord now, to introduce it to our children in a similar way. That this is going to be the sweetest, most pleasurable thing you're ever going to have in your life. May the words of God be sweet. May they be sweeter than honey. May they be pleasant to the taste. Honey is, is considered one of the sweetest and best tasting things in the world. In fact, God himself said when he was going to bring the children of Israel into the promised land, he said, I'm taking you into the land of milk and Honey. Let's continue. The next course they would take or the next school they would go to was called the Bet Talmud. This was the school uh, that they would attend just the best of the best of those that made it and memorized from age 10 uh, would make it into this school and it meant house of learning. From age 10 to 14 in Bet Talmud, they would memorize the rest of the Hebrew scriptures all the way to Malachi. So you're talking about roughly uh, 39 books uh, now, the, the way that the Jewish Old Testament is set up versus the Old Testament that we, that we read in, uh, in our Bibles, it's the same scriptures, but they're not chopped up the same way. So that's why I say roughly 39 books that they would memorize by age 14. Can you imagine having the entire Old Testament memorized? There are probably more Christians in the world right now that have almost no familiarity with the Old Testament, then there are people who have memorized it. Memorized the Old Testament by age 14, that is a, that is a large-scale responsibility. And they still do that today. They still do that over there today. So all the way from Genesis to Malachi. So think about that for a moment, and we'll bring this back into your own life for a second. But whenever you turn on CNN or you turn on Fox News and you see the conflict that's going on in Israel all the time. And we talk about how crazy those people are. And on one side, they're strapping vests and bombs to their chest. 
On the other side, they refuse to give up or back down. Nobody can give a little bit. Nobody can take a little bit. There is, seems to be no middle ground, no matter what side of it you fall on. Well, there are exactly two religions in the world that force their kids to memorize their entire set of scriptures by age 14. That is the Jewish religion and the Muslim religion. Now, could you imagine that that's all that you're taught to do? I mean, you know what I mean by all. From the time that you're a child until you're 14 years old, can you imagine the passion? Can you imagine the, the deep-rooted, If even if it's not passion, if it was just a task, it is rooted deep into your very being, into your very soul, if you will. If you have spent that many years of your life memorizing a thing and you've been taught, hey, if you're really good at it, you'll go to the next level and memorize this. And if you're really good at it, you'll go to the next level and memorize that. And so you're, it's, it's just like encouraging a child in sports or academics or whatever. They are, they get the pat on the back. Good job. Well done, son, for their ability to memorize their scriptures. So then when a person rises up in conflict and has something negative to say about those scriptures, that's the, that's the same as attacking that person or their family. It is so ingrained. Maybe give you a little bit better of an idea of why they're so consumed by that conflict in the Middle East. They would also, uh, in this Bet Talmud, be learning a very uh, precious, now this is just a Jewish thing, art uh, concerning the Word of God, one that I think we should all get better at. It's called the art of questions and answers. So the difference in, uh, a big difference in Jewish schooling and American schooling, or at least back in the day, the way that they learned and the way that we learn now, is that now we have standardized testing where we're taught to memorize a certain amount of information and regurgitate. Memorize and regurgitate. Memorize and regurgitate. Now, until they're 14 years old, they are taught this memorization, but then once they learn it, they're taught this art of questioning and answering. Uh, an example would be, in Americanized school, the teacher would ask, what is two plus two? And we would, the only right answer would be four. And the Jewish thought of study, they would say, what is two plus two? And it would be wiser for a child to answer, what is eight minus four? Which is also the right answer. But they're taught to answer a question with a question. We've all heard of that concept. But when you take it, to the extent that the rabbis took it to you, begin to see some pretty amazing things happen. And we're going to show that here. We're going to display that for you. You're going to see the wisdom of Jesus and the wisdom of God in this whole thing. Let me give you, uh, let me give you an example of how it is that more, uh, perhaps a higher level of wisdom could be displayed using this art uh, versus just the standardized, here's a question, here's an answer. The story goes like this. A young man walks into a museum of fine art, and he sees a famous rabbi staring at three pictures. And he sits there and he watches him. And the rabbi stares at one picture for a few minutes. And then he walks over and he stands in front of the other picture for a few minutes. And then he walks over and he stands in front of the third picture for a few minutes. And he repeats this for a long period of time. And finally the young man walks up to him, not wanting to interrupt, and says, Rabbi, can I ask you a question? And the rabbi nods his head. And he says, uh, I've seen you staring at these three pictures for a long time. Which... Which one is your favorite? Hoping to learn something about how the rabbi thinks. Which one of the pictures is your favorite? And the rabbi turns to him and says, are you married? And the young man says, well, yeah, actually I am married. Um, but um, I'd gladly tell you more about myself. But I really just want to know uh, of these three pictures, which one, which one do you think is the best? And the rabbi takes a minute and he turns to the young man and he says, do you have children? And the man says, well, yeah, I do. And, and I, again, I'll gladly tell you a lot, whatever you want to know about me, but just real quick, which one of these pictures is your favorite? And the rabbi turns to the young man and says, which one of your children do you prefer? And then the young man, then he gets it. That's the answer to the question. It's not that one's better and it's not that one's preferred. All three are different, yet they're appreciated on the same level. But there's more wisdom in that answer than just picking one and saying that one or, or whatnot. Um, so they learn this at a young age. I want to I express to you uh, why this matters biblically. We uh, flip over to Matthew. Uh, let me see here. Let's actually go to Luke chapter 2. Start in verse number 46. 
Luke chapter 2 and 46. Now remember in Bet Talmud, they're between ages 10 and 14. In Luke chapter 2, 46, it came to pass that after three days of his parents searching for him, this is when they lost Jesus as a child. First of all, put yourself in that position. Everything that Mary and Joseph had been through. They had to have the discussion. She had to convince him, you know how we've never been together and we've never been with anybody else and we did everything right and yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I had a dream last night and I woke up pregnant. That's a, that's a tough one. In fact, Joseph was not, was not having it and God had to come to him in a dream and revealed to him, yes, this is what I'm doing. Okay, so once he, once he in his own heart felt good about it, okay, this is really what God is doing. Could you imagine the conversations they had about how they're going to explain this to everybody else? They could not expect that God is going to show up to the in-laws in a dream and show up to the friends in a dream and everybody's going to understand. You know, they were probably somewhat happy to hightail it out of there on that donkey and back to Bethlehem and, and uh, do the whole census thing or whatever, just get away. And um, they had a rough life. They had a rough patch. The, the wise men come, and, the, and Jesus is about two years old, and they're worshiping, and they're they're throwing uh, they're, they're throwing uh, literally gold and frankincense and valuable things at their feet. God is coming to them in more dreams. Take them into Egypt. Take them over here. Do this thing. They're watching. They're hearing from God all the time. They've been given this great responsibility to watch after God's son. A number one, highest priority on the list. Nothing is more important. You know what? I could lose my job. I could lose my credit. I could lose my, certainly my keys. I could lose my wallet. I could lose all kinds of things and I'll still be pretty square as long as I don't lose God's son. Kind of a big deal. I think when I get up to heaven, God will be like, yeah, you, you, you kind of misplaced a lot of things, but you know, you took care of my son, so we're good. But here all of a sudden they're walking along and they don't realize Jesus is missing. What were those three days like? Three days? Goodness gracious. After three days, they found him in the temple, sitting in the midst of the doctors, both hearing them and asking them questions. And all that heard him were astonished at two things, his understanding and his answers. Why why is his understanding different than his answers? Because to a Jewish mindset, his understanding is expressed through the questions that he's able to ask them. And it just said there before that, that he was asking them questions and they were astonished. In other words, he is a young man going through the Bet Talmud in the school of Hallel, if you will, learning to be what would eventually be called a Pharisee. But if you make it past that and you, and you, and you memorize more of the word of God, of course it helps when you are the word of God wrapped in flesh, then it makes it probably pretty easy then you get to that next level and you get to that next school we're going to talk about in a moment. But here he's 12 years old in the middle of Bet Talmud, memorizing the entire Old Testament all the way to Malachi. And they lose him and he's in the temple with those that have the doctrines. And he's asking them questions and they're astonished. They're like, how are you doing this? And he's like, well, one day I'm going to tell your kids and maybe you'll still be around that I am the word of God wrapped in flesh, that I'm God's only son. And despite what's happening right here, you're not going to believe me. I just remember this moment. And so they find him there, and he's doing exactly what we read is done historically. And uh, when they saw him, they were amazed. His mother said unto him, Son, why have you dealt with us? Uh, Behold, thy father and I have sought thee sorrowing. And he said unto them a question. How is it that you sought me? Wish you not that I must be about my father's business? And then it leaves out the part where they said, You're grounded. But still, he's 12 years old, and... He's got these questions already. If a child was able to show that he had the ability uh, to be among the best of the best at memorizing the scripture and the art of question answering, he would be able to move into the next phase, which was called Bet Midrash. We're going somewhere this morning. We're almost done with the history. Stick with me. At the end of Bet Talmud, around 13 or 14 years of age, if you're the best of the best, you would go and present yourself to a well-known, respected, and powerful rabbi, and you would ask, a young man was able to ask, Rabbi, can I become your Talmudzin? Talmud is, you have the Torah and the Tanakh. The Torah is the first five books. The Tanakh is the entire Old Testament. Talmud is kind of extracurricular learning or writing that's rabbinical writing 
that is uh, testifying and, and, and details and telling stories around the Old Testament and how to type of nature to be a priest and a rabbi and all that stuff is why he would be called a Talmudzin. Now, we still use this term today, but we don't say Talmudzin. We use the English word, which is disciple. So oftentimes in church, you hear about becoming a disciple of Christ, and we wonder what exactly does that mean? What is the difference between being a believer and being a disciple? It is the difference between, in in some respects, being a hearer and being a doer of the word. It's the difference between being a church member and a Talmud zine. It's the difference between signing a membership card and walking into the presence of God and saying, can I please be your disciple? Can I please be your Talmud zine? Can you please teach me, lead me, and guide me? Because I believe the word of God says that eventually I'm going to become their God and every man shall know me and no man shall need to run to his brother and say, where's your God? Who is your God? Because they will all know me and they will understand me. It even says you will have no need that any man shall teach you, which doesn't mean that we don't need teachers or preachers or prophets because he gives us all of those things. But what he's saying is, I'm not putting those teachers in between you and I. You have the ability to come directly to me and to directly understand me and allow me to lead you to good teachers, preachers, pastors, prophets, evangelists, apostles, all that good stuff. So he's able to walk in and say, Rabbi, I want to become your Talmud Zin, your disciple, and be part of your house of study, which is the Bet Midrash. The rabbi at that time would sit the young man down and begin to ask him questions to find out if he is indeed one of the best of the best. Each rabbi wanted to teach his thinking, his thought process, because each rabbi had a certain philosophy and a certain interpretation of the scripture. Each rabbi's interpretation, this is where it's going to start to get real for you and I, and each rabbi's philosophy was given a term. It had its own name. If you were to walk into a rabbi's office and ask to be part of his Bet Midrash, ask to be one of his Talmudzin, he would display to you what is called the rabbi's yoke. His yoke was his interpretation and his philosophy concerning the scriptures. They weren't all exactly alike, but they could all be right to an extent. Well, how does that look? Well, modern day, it looks like we have Methodist, Baptist, Presbyterian, Episcopalian, Pentecostal, Catholic, Lutheran, so on, so forth. All of these denominations, as far as I know, and I've been parts of, of most of them at some point in my life, believe that Jesus Christ is the son of God. And if you believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, if you believe that He is the way, the truth, and the life, you know what you get for that? Salvation. All of it. It doesn't matter if you believed it because you heard it through the Methodist or the Baptist or the Presbyterian. It doesn't matter. There are things that do matter because if you yoke yourself up to the Baptist church, I want to get this straight. You can't dance. Is that right? For the most part. Okay, now there's no really good regard to scripture to say that it's a sin to dance. But if you yoke yourself up to that understanding, that philosophy concerning the true scripture that Jesus Christ is the only way, truth and life, the only way to the father, then that's going to matter to your life a little bit. The way that they act and interact and the rules that they each follow. If you're a UPC Pentecostal, you cannot have a TV in your house, but I can and we can both go to heaven. So there's the difference. I know about the new shows coming out and you don't. That doesn't make a difference for salvation, but it does make a difference for your life right now. You know, Jesus said that the enemy comes to steal, kill, and destroy, but I came to give you life and life more abundantly. And the Bible says, whenever you follow me and you lay certain things down, that I will give to you not only in the life to come, but in this life right now. So he is concerned about your level of joy and your level of happiness and your level of fulfillment in him in this life now as well as that life, that's going to be affected by where you decide to yoke up. Some of what you learn and some of how you understand the scripture will be affected by where you decide to yoke up. So there are differences among them all. It doesn't mean that any one of them are wrong. In my opinion, what happens is each one of them found a stopping point at some time a long time ago and never got past it. 
And if we could just combine the core beliefs, not the fence laws, but the core beliefs of every denomination, what we would have is the full gospel in a nutshell. So it's not that, again, I'm not pointing out that you're wrong, you're wrong, you're wrong. In fact, what I like to say is you're all right. Just take down your barriers that separate you from one another. And what we'll have is the full gospel. So that's fine. And we all get to go to heaven. And I'm glad for that. Our goal is to go through the least amount of hell on our way there, so to speak. So this yoke, he would ask all kinds of questions. He would see the young man's answers. And if the answers were satisfactory, then he would say, Lek ekare, which means come and follow me. And you would become a Talmud Zina disciple, a student. So let me paint this picture for you real quick. I'm sorry, there are two responses. He would ask the questions and he would say, Lek ekare, which means come and follow me. Or he would say, if he was not impressed with the young man, he would say, you, you know the Bible well. He would say you would know the, the Tanakh or the Torah well. We'll just call it the Bible. You know the Bible well, and you've done well. But you are not meant to be one of my Talmud zine. And it would be the same line every time. They would literally say, go home, make babies, pray that they can grow up to become rabbis, and do well in your family trade. So every man that was in Israel in the day of Jesus Christ. I want you to pay attention. This is going to mean something when we get there. Every man that was not a Pharisee, a Sadducee, or a rabbi was, in essence, a reject. If they were fishermen, it's because they were rejected at school. They were not good enough to be a disciple of Talmud Zin. If they were tax collectors, it's because they weren't, everybody wanted to be a rabbi. They weren't good enough. They tried to make it into the Bet Midrash, but they couldn't. If they were anything other, if they sold oils, if they were a carpenter, if they were anything other than Pharisee, Sadducee, Rabbi, it's because they were rejected. Because this was the goal and this was the path of every young man at that time. And there was no uh, better station in Jewish life than to become a rabbi. Now I want to read some scriptures to you real quick. Uh, let's go to Matthew chapter two, verse number four. It's going to be the last little stroke and painting this picture. And then we're going to pull it all together. Matthew chapter two, verse four says, when he had gathered all of the chief priests and scribes and people together, he demanded of them where Christ should be born. And he sent them to Bethlehem and said, go and search diligently. Verse eight for the young child. And when you have found him, bring me word again, that I may come and worship him also. This is Herod speaking. Verse number 16 then Herod, when he saw that he was mocked of the wise men because they didn't return like they were supposed to, he was exceedingly wroth, and he sent forth and slew all of the children that were in Bethlehem and all of the coasts thereof from two years old and under, according to the time which he had diligently inquired of the wise men. Herod did not want to be displaced as king. He did not want his family to be displaced as king. So he set it up like he was going to... Uh, employ these wise men, these magi, to go and find Christ and bring word back to him so that he could go worship him too. And then when they found him, they were warned in a dream, do not return to Herod, so they went a different way. Herod figured it out. Herod got upset. He knew that Jesus was a, was at the, uh, about two years old, possibly a little younger. So he sent out a decree, specifically in Bethlehem, but it says in all of the coasts and regions thereabout, to slay every child every male child two years old and younger disgusting terrible thing that is that produces a different picture that i think a lot of times we don't realize or we don't think about especially not knowing the history of the rabbinical study in jerusalem at the time but when jesus christ was sitting in the temple courtyard and he was questioning the doctrines of the day and they were hearing his answers, and they were hearing his questions, and they were astonished. There were not very many other young men his age around to do that, because they all were killed when he was about two years old. So he was in a very small class. And in that very small class, they were astonished. They said, there hasn't been a kid like this come through 
ever. And here he is, and he's literally the only one, just about. Because there aren't any other young men his age in the school right now. Uh, a person who went through the Bet Midrash and became a Talmudzin and followed a rabbi in order to become like that rabbi could not be given the authority to be a rabbi until he turned 30 years old. Ironically enough, Jesus Christ walks into the Jordan River where there's one yoke and on the immerser, John the Baptist, who is baptizing and immersing people for a new reason, a new baptism. And Jesus walks into the river and he's 30 years old and he asks John to baptize him, signifying his entrance into the ministry. And we see the Holy Spirit come down like a dove and the God the Father speak out of heaven. This is my son in whom I'm well pleased. And at that point, he is given the authority by his father, but he's also the age to be given authority by man to walk around and teach the scriptures of God because he's of age to be a rabbi. And he was one of the best. So let me paint this picture for you. There are men all over Israel that desperately want to follow a rabbi. There are young men and there are old men. There are men who are coming through, young children and men that are coming through the schooling system. And there are men who have already taken up the family trade. And they need a rabbi that doesn't have very many Talmudzin or disciples. Because once he had enough, he couldn't take any more. So they were, they were already walking around Israel and they were already full. But there was this one guy. There was this one guy they've been hearing about since he was 12 years old. One guy coming through the system because there weren't very many other people turning 30 that year. There weren't very many other rabbis coming up through the system. And this guy was a rock star. He was putting the doctors, he was, he was making them take a step back and making them rethink. And he was putting them to their wits end when he was 12 years old. They've been hearing about him forever. And he's finally turning 30. He's finally coming of age. Everybody's wanting to have a shot at asking this guy, can I be part of your Bet Midrash? You're the only young rabbi coming up through the ranks. So he's walking through the system. He's memorized it all and they know it. He's memorized it all and they've heard it. They heard about things that happened to him when he was a child. Supposedly his mom had a dream and the Holy Spirit and she got pregnant and nobody understands what happened. But here's this kid and sure enough, he's a rock star. It's crazy. I don't know what to believe. But all I know is that here he is. And he needs disciples. So there's a way that they've always done it. There's a way that they've always done it. They've always come into a room. They've sat down and had an interview process. And the rabbi sits back with his, his nice clothes on. All of the splendor of being a rabbi. All of the fame. All of the authority. Stroking his beard, asking the tough questions. Well, I don't know, my son. What do you think about this? No, I'm not good enough, sir. It's a, kind of a Russian rabbi. It's not good for you. Not good. Go to Ukraine. So anyway, they're doing it the way that they do it. And they're kind of expecting Jesus, I'm sure, to be the same way. But Jesus is not the same way. Everybody say, I am a Christian. This is the original Christian, Jesus Christ. One of the characteristics of being a Christian, one of the characteristics of being like Jesus, he doesn't do things traditionally. So he's not sitting in the seat taking interviews. He's walking around the coastline, specifically walking up to men that are already in the midst of their family trade. He walks up to the rejects and he says, come and follow me. He says, lek ekari, come and follow me. Now I see a different reasoning. Now I can understand how Peter could be fishing off the side of the boat see Jesus walking down the shoreline. Oftentimes he had a crowd following him in any way. They heard that he was coming. I mean, the man couldn't walk through the street without people yelling at him. Jesus, son of David, trying to get something from him. The crowd pressed him, whatever. He had a following. He had a, a knowing because he was the rock star rabbi with no disciples. He was like the only one that was coming of age. He walks up to somebody that was already rejected and he says, hey, come and follow me. What are they going to do? 
done with the fishing net, following this guy. I am a Talmudzin. I don't know what Philip was doing, doesn't really say. But he says, hey, Philip, come and follow me. What do you think Philip's going to do? Matthew is sitting at the table as a tax collector. That means he's writing receipts at the moment. There's something going on. There's a crowd of people. Everybody hates the tax collectors. God only knows what they're talking about and what they're doing. But he's in the middle of an important job. He's working for the IRS. And Jesus walks up to him and says, come and follow me. Matthew lays all that down, gets up from the table and follows him. The the guy that was at the front of the line, like Matthew was doing his stuff right then, he was probably excited. He took his stuff and was like, yeah, (laughs) nobody even knows what just happened. My IRS agent just left the building and I didn't have the money. Come and follow me. That's pretty amazing. Pretty amazing. He doesn't do things the same way. They would say uh, in Israel, somebody would walk up to these young men wherever they would go, these disciples and, they, and these students, and they would say, may you be covered in the dust of your rabbi. The reason they would say that is because literally as you're following your rabbi, as you're following your mentor and your teacher, they would follow them so closely because they would want to be like them that they would do everything that they would do. If the guy would stop and put a toothpick in his mouth, the disciples would all, the Talmudim would all take a toothpick and put it in their mouth. If he ate with his left hand, they ate with their left hand. If he switched to his right, they switched to their right. Whatever he said, they said. Whatever he did, they did. And there were, it was a long, dusty road everywhere they went back in the day. So they would follow so close behind him that as he walked, he would kick up dust and they would literally be covered in the dust of their rabbi. My challenge to you this morning is to be covered in the dust of Jesus Christ. The Bible says Jesus spoke to his disciples and he said, when you walk into a city, you walk into a house, if they, you display the word of God, you witness and you testify, if they reject you, before you leave, shake the dust off your feet. Shake the dust off your feet at the doorway. Let that be against them. And walk away. Why did he ask them to shake the dust off there? Because they're not worthy to be covered in the dust of that rabbi. Knowing that, I want to read this scripture to you again and then we'll bring it all around. Matthew chapter 11, verse 28 through 30. Jesus Christ says, come unto me. In other words, he's saying, come and follow me, all of you that labor and are heavy laden. Who labors this morning? How many of you have ever felt heavy? How many of you feel heavy laden by the world around you, by your job, by your situation, by your family, by your relationship, by your bank account, by your church, by your whatever? Jesus is saying, come and follow me. In other words, don't follow necessarily the church that you attend. Don't follow necessarily the group of people that you are with that go to the church that you attend. Don't follow necessarily uh, the outreach that's done by the group of people that attend the church that you go to necessarily go to all of that be part of all of that given to all of that but understand that you are following me come unto me all of you that are heavy laden and i will give you rest take my yoke everybody say yoke upon you and learn of me for i'm meek and lowly in heart let me show you what that looks like we 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 start to understand it based on that historical lesson but let me show you what that looks like to the jewish people this is an unbelievably rebellious statement the reason is as they went through their three schools and they had to memorize in particular their torah but even the rest of the 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 old testament they had to memorize, we know, we know 10 commandments, and those are called in the Old Testament the 10 great. They had to memorize 613 commandments. 613. That's a lot. They say the pomegranate is, it's an indigenous fruit to Israel. They say if you cut open a, a, a pomegranate that was grown perfectly, that it has 613 seeds in it. So the rabbis, they walk around Israel and they uh, believe in another rabbi and that he fulfills the law, they would shake his hand and say, you are full as a pomegranate as you keep all 613 laws. It was a big deal. 
All the rabbis took a lot of pleasure in the fact that among everybody else in the world, they are the ones that are considered to understand and keep those 613 commandments. Other people are rejects, couldn't keep them. Jesus says, come unto me, all of you that labor and are heavy laden. Come unto me, all of you that have been taught that you have to memorize and keep 613 commandments. Come unto me, all of you that have been taught legalistically that the only way to please God is by your own righteousness. I want to, I want to tell you a secret. I'm not doing away uh, with any of the prophets. I'm not doing away with any of the law. I'm not doing away with anything you've been taught. But I am coming to do things a new way. And instead of reading them, and instead of these things being prophecies of something that's going to happen in the future, instead of just looking at them and trying to walk them out or learn and memorize, I am coming to fulfill them. And this is my yoke, Jesus says. I don't want 613 commandments. I don't even want 10 I want two. I want you to love your neighbor as yourself and love the Lord your God with all of your heart, all of your mind, all of your strength, and all of your soul. That is my interpretation, Jesus says. That is my philosophy. If you want to be my disciple, that is my yoke. Can you handle it? You know who couldn't handle it? All the people that thought they were so smart. All the people that had studied so hard and not been rejected. Because they were taught to believe that they were the intelligent ones. They were the geniuses. They had it all figured out. They didn't like that yoke because anybody could do that. Jesus already knew that. So he said, you know what? A doctor doesn't come for those that are made whole. A doctor comes for those that are sick. I'm not here for those of you that are able to do it on your own. I don't want your genius. I don't want your ability. I don't want your awesomeness. I want your rejects. I want your failures. I want those that are tempted. I want those that fall short. I want those that know. I don't want the Pharisee that's praying, God, thank me. You, uh, thank you that you haven't made me like other men. I want the tax collector that's saying, God, please forgive me. I want to repent because I know that I've done wrong. I know that I'm not good enough. Jesus says, you've been yoked and you've been burdened with an unrealistic reality. And I'm here to set you free. Come unto me, those of you that are heavy laden. Come unto me, those of you that labor. If it's still not hitting home for you, let me try it like this. He wants to do things a different way. He's doing it completely different. And here's the word for you this morning. This is what I want you to take into your life. There are things in your life, there are decisions that you're trying to make. Like we talked about earlier, you're not sure whether to go left or you're not sure whether to go right. And I feel like God is saying, take an example from my son this morning. I am a God that is the same yesterday, today, and forever. But I'm also a God who is always doing a new thing. How can both of those things exist at the same time? Jesus is our example. He said, I didn't come to, I, I didn't come to do away with the law. I didn't come to do away with the prophets. They told of something that was going to come. When I'm done, they'll tell of something that's already happened. I'm doing the same thing, but I'm doing it a new way. And I believe that your answer this morning for your situation, God is saying it does no good to try to reinvent the wheel. So if you're trying to make a decision this morning, I feel like God is saying it is not time to lay that thing down and try to find something new and start over fresh and find a new direction and do all that. That is not the way that God wants it to be done. He doesn't want you to reinvent the wheel. He wants you to take the wheel that's already been invented and use it in a different way. Make it more efficient. Make it more environmentally friendly. However you want to put it, don't lay that thing down completely. Is it a relationship? He's saying, you know what? I don't want you to throw relationships out the window because this one's been hard. What I want you to do is approach that relationship in a brand new way. If it's your job, he's saying, I don't want you to toss the industry out the window. I don't know what, if you're an engineer, he's saying, I don't want you to lay down your engineering. Just find a new firm. If you're a waiter and you don't like the, the restaurant that you're at, ask to transfer to a new location. Whatever the case may be, God is saying, I am not in the business right now of starting over. I am in the business of reinventing, yes, but not the entire industry, just yourself. 
approach the same thing a new way. That is the opposite of religion. Approach the same thing a new way. The yoke and the burden of Jesus Christ is a yoke and a burden of freedom. Are you with me this morning? God is good. You're going to help me pray this morning because I feel like we're missing something. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Jesus. Glory, 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 glory. Thank you, Father. Thank you, Lord. I want to go ahead and get the worship team to come up. Just start playing some music. We're going to close out. But not until we finish. Thank you, Lord. Father, we thank you this morning. Lord, we thank you for everything that you're doing. We thank you for the words that you're speaking. Here's one thing. I want to play that song, The Air I Breathe, whatever, I think that's the name of it, that we've already played twice. But I want you guys to consider this morning, this is not just a song. This is not just a random set of lyrics. I want you to think about these lyrics when we play this song, and I want you to believe them. Not just sing them, but believe them. If he was really the air that you breathe, if he is really your beginning and your end, if he is really everything, you are in a good spot. If he is just something, then you need to check yourself. If he is just one thing and a whole litany of things that provide for you and they give you stability and they give you comfort and they give you purpose, if he's just one among many, you should take a moment and think about what that means. God wants to be your everything this morning. He's looking at you. He's, he's looking at your heart. He's weighing it. He's gauging it. And he's saying, my son, my daughter, have you ever been rejected? Do you feel like you're not able to do the thing that I've called you to do? Do you feel like this morning... That you're walking out of life every day that you wake up is another step and another practice in futility. Are you tired of sitting down at the lunch table and telling your friends and your family, yeah, God's about to do something? Is that notion starting to get old? Have you hit a point yet where you've asked God and you've told him, you know what? I believe you. But I don't want to, I don't want that to be on my tombstone. I don't want those to be my dying words. God's about to do something. I want you to do it. I want it to be done. I want to see it. I want to bask in it. I want to be part of it. I want to taste and see that the Lord is good. He's saying you're living a life of rejection. You are a disciple of the wrong system. You've been given false hope. Somehow. The church has converted from being his bride. Into being its own industry. And you don't fit the mold. Confusion sets in. He is the author and the finisher of our faith. He is not a God of confusion. So this is what I feel like he's saying this morning. You're sitting on the shoreline of rejection. Considering that family trade or that work that you're doing that doesn't really feel like the work you were meant to do. He's walking along that shoreline and the enemy's done everything that he can. He killed everybody two years and under in order to stop 
this phrase from ever reaching your ears. There are four words that the enemy tried with everything in him to prevent you from hearing this morning. It is the rabbi of all rabbis. It is the leader of all leaders. It is the God of gods and the king of kings. And he's walking along that shoreline with you and he's simply saying, come and follow me. Come and follow me. It seems simple, but I want you to meditate on that. I don't care if you're seven or 70. Or younger or older than that. There's a purpose for your life. There's a destiny attached to your salvation. And it was predetermined before you were even in your mother's womb. You're sitting here this morning in a small crowd of people in the back of a pizza restaurant in Webster, Texas. You might as well be on a fishing boat in Galilee. It's basically the same thing. And God is just trying to shout to you from heaven this morning. Come and follow me. Come and follow me. Just come and follow me. Not halfway. Not one day a week. Forget about church, man. Traditionally, we've set up church the way that we've set up church, but Jesus does it differently. You know why church can be boring sometimes? Because it's one day a week. If you're super duper dedicated, it's two days a week. And even those two day a weekers don't make it two days every week. But Jesus is saying every day, every day, following him is not enough when you do it every once in a while. But following him is everything you'll ever need if you can make a commitment to doing it every day. Do you want to be a Christian or do you want to be a Talmudzin? Do you want to wear the t-shirt or do you want to be covered in the dust? You know what dust is? It's broken up sediment. It used to be a rock. It's little pieces of a rock. The word of God says that the word of God is a rock. That Jesus is a rock. He wants to dust you with little pieces of himself. A little bit more every day. A little bit more of the word of God. How do you get dusty? You open up that Bible. How do you get dusty? You get down on your knees and pray. How do you get dusty? Man, you witness. You testify. You open doors for people. Acts of kindness in Jesus' name. Just give somebody a, a glass of water in my name. You've given me a glass of water. You love people because people are made in the image of God. And then you open up that Bible and then you pray. And then you set the Bible down. You get out of your prayer closet. You walk outside and you love some people. Then you come back home. Spend some time with your family. Do whatever you do. Open up the Bible. Pray. If you're not Pentecostal, watch a TV show. It's all right. We'll depend on the TV show. It's all right. Say a prayer. Go to sleep, morning and evening sacrifice, dream sweet dreams, pray over your family before you sleep, wake up in the morning, pray over your family when you wake up, get out there, read a little Bible, pray a little prayer, love some people in Jesus' name, come back and do it again. I promise you, it will be everything you ever needed. It's easier than trying to figure out which club to go to next. It's easier than trying to figure out what's the next trend, what's the next fun thing that's going on. It's easier than trying to figure out what group of friends you should go where with. It's easier than trying to figure out how to stay in and be part of the crowd and, and what is fun and what isn't fun and what's going to fulfill me. These are plans that I could make. These are things that I could do and I hope that it will be fun and I hope that I can turn around tomorrow and say that yesterday was a good day, but I'm not sure because I'm not sure how this is going to turn out. I can tell you how it's going to turn out if you open up your Bible. 
If you believe in it, if it is the air you breathe, if you pray, if you believe it, if you ask God a very dangerous question, which is this question, God, will you use me today? And then watch what happens. Watch what happens. The glory of God, it's a hard thing to describe, but it's an impossible thing to get away from. Thank you this morning, Lord, in Jesus' name. Father, we want to be covered in the dust. We want to be called your disciples. We want to openly admit that we were rejected. Openly admit that we weren't good enough. Because if we don't sit on that shoreline, we don't see you walking by. And if we don't see you walking by, we don't hear your voice. And if we don't hear your voice, we don't hear those four words. And if we don't hear those four words, we might never be everything that we were meant to be. This morning, Father, I pray that you would grab a hold of the hearts of those that are here and pull us out of the mundane, every once in a while Christian life and just fling us, Lord God, directly into the life of a disciple. Come and follow me, he said. Remember all the days of your life from the day that you were born until this moment have all led up to tomorrow. That makes tomorrow pretty important. Take the same thing and do it a new way. Approach it with a new attitude and see new results.